Would you be turning or looking at your bulletin today? This will be the third lesson or message in the series on the 139th Psalm, be the second part dealing with the omniscience of God in verses 1 through 6. Would you stand with me and let's read those verses together. Ready? O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compass my path and my lying down, art acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. You may be seated. We defined the word omniscient last week as being that which is all-knowing. Science meaning knowledge, and omni meaning all, or all knowledge. It is God alone who possesses all knowledge. Now we're going to come back and elaborate upon these same verses, have a reason for that, in expanding what we covered uh, last week. We ask you to keep your Bibles open there, as we'll be staying primarily within the text with maybe a few references here and there. Beginning with David's opening line, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. When he says, O Lord, Thou hast, or You have, I would note at the very outset that God is worthy of praise because he alone is all-knowing. But if we would praise God correctly, we must draw the content of our praise from God himself. It is not left up to us to praise ourselves or to come up with mechanisms, but we must recognize and praise God for what he is and what he is doing. Oh God, you have. In other words, we're returning praise to the being of God because he is worthy of that praise and for various things which he has done and demonstrated in his creative order. This God is all-knowing. You have searched me. You do know me. How good it is to know the God who knows us. Reflect on that. How good it is to know the God who knows us. Next, the words, thou hast searched me. The word searched comes from a Hebrew word meaning to dig. And it's used here as a metaphor or a figure of speech. And it is 
physically applied to the search for precious metals. Like a prospector goes out and searches in the earth for precious metals. A companion verse might be located in the book of Job, chapter 28, verses 1 through 3. And there we read, Surely there is a vein for the silver, and a place for gold where they find it, or refine it. Iron is taken from the earth, brass is molten out of the stone. He setteth an end to darkness, and searcheth out all perfection, the stones of darkness, and the shadow of death. So just as an earthly prospector sets out to dig in the ground or the earth in search of precious metals, so it is used here of God that God has searched perfectly out and knows all about us. But here it is used as a metaphor to describe a diligent inquiry into moral guilt and moral innocence. This is what God searches for. Sometimes when we read a text such as this, because we are Christians, and because a true Christian is sensitive to the fact of continued indwelling sin, it may make a person uneasy to have the awareness that God knows all about that sin. But let us also counterbalance that. God not only knows when we're guilty, He knows when we're innocent. He knows when we are doing right as well as when He knows that we are doing wrong. So let us not just focus upon the negative part of our nature, which is a nature of sinfulness, but as believers we also have a nature of holiness which is inclined toward God. And God knows that. He has searched me and known me. Look at the next three words in verse 1, and known me. This knowledge which God has implies exact intelligence and precise understanding. But let us be careful that we not let the metaphor which we have just referred to distort the truth of God. Yes, God searches out. But this is designed primarily to assist us in our finiteness. And let us not push the metaphor too far in the sense of this manner. While God knows everything perfectly, He knows everything at once. Searching after the manner of men we finite creatures, implies a degree of ignorance until it is removed by acquiring information. I may be ignorant about a matter, and if I search it out 
then I can acquire that information and I'm no longer ignorant about that. If I want to know the meaning of a word, I have to confess I don't know that. So I go to the dictionary and I acquire information. Now then, I have searched it out. Let us be careful that we not take the metaphor and push that into the character of God in an absolute sense. Why, Pastor? Because God's knowledge, listen, is intuitive, it's not acquired. God has never learned anything. He does not search out like the human prospector trying to find something that he doesn't yet know is there. I say it again. God's knowledge is intuitive knowledge. It is not acquired knowledge. And the meaning of the psalmist is that God knows us thoroughly as if he had examined us minutely and pried into the most hidden corners of our very being. It's as if God has done this. Now, since God cannot forget what he has once known, there was never a time, Brother Asa, when we were unknown to God. And there will never be a moment in which we shall be beyond his observation. Now, that's consoling to me. There was a time in my life in which that I despised that understanding. I didn't want a God like that looking over my shoulder. But now I find that consoling. That he knew me before I was ever born. That he knows all about my past, he knows my present, and he shall know all of my future. So that I'm in his hand. And no man shall be able to separate me from his hand. I say that knowledge which God has of me regarding my future is very encouraging and stabilizing to me. Now this means then that God knows our exact circumstances that all of us are in today. He knows our present needs which each one of us possess today. He knows our sorrows which we are carrying today. And he knows the precise time to relieve us and come to our aid. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he'll exalt you in due season. God knows the exact set of circumstances that I'm in today. He knows I'm 70 years old. He knows that my body will not perform like it did many years ago. My brain doesn't work as well as it did in earlier years. Now, he knows that. I wish that to be not the case. I wish that I still was a young man in many ways. But I'm not, and I'm never going to be again in this life. Now, God knows that. Now, why does that help? It helps me deal with guilt when I can no longer produce at the level that I did 30 or 40 years ago. Do you see that? I can't run as fast, but I don't have to feel guilty about it. 
instead of being able to put a sermon together in 30 hours, now then it may take me 50 hours to do it. Hmm? What does that mean? It means I just can't produce as many sermons. All right? He knows my circumstances. He knows my needs. He knows I can't hear. He knows I can't see. And on and on and on. He knows those needs. And he takes those things into consideration and an awareness in his dealings with me. He pities me as a father pities his child. That's the kind of God who knows me. Knows all about my circumstances and my needs. I think there's a song to that effect. Our God knows my, knows my needs. What's the name of it? Anybody know? He knows just what I need. At the very moment, He knows that. And He knows whether it is yet time for Him to come and relieve me of my needs. And He knows that I'm going to have needs right now that are not going to be relieved in this present age, but it's going to wait until the age to come. Hmm? He's not going to make me a young man again. He's not going to make me a little boy again. I'm not going through this cycle again. But he knows there will come a time in which he's appointed not only the day of my birth, the day of my spiritual birth, but also the day of my death. And precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. And he knows there's a time in which that I'm going to get a new body in which that I'll never have to have these needs again. Huh? That's the God who knows me. He also knows my sorrows. I have sorrows, do you? Hmm? There are things that exist in my life and my acquaintances that are a grief uh, to me. It's a grief to me to be born in 1941 and living here in the year 2011 and see what has happened to the country that I love. It's almost as if a foreign nation has come in and invaded the United States of America and taken over the country that I grew up in. Those of you that are younger, you don't understand what I'm talking about because you can't relate to that. But our government in Washington no longer thinks the way that it thought when I was a boy. It's a different country. It's a different world. And that's a grief to me. It's a grief to me. It's a grief to me to see what has occurred in the churches in which I've labored and in the other churches in which that I'm only acquainted with. To see the changes that have taken place over a period of 48 years. To see things which were precious to me at one time and now are no longer acceptable or desirable. And to be told by those in leadership is those things don't work anymore. And if you do not make changes, why, you'll soon disappear from the scene. And from all outward appearances, most of them seem to be right. The churches in which that I know that stand for the truth of God and still preach the gospel and do it in simplicity and leave off the showmanship are declining in nearly every place I look. 
and I see churches closing. That's a sorrow to me. And I'm too old to make the changes now. Too old to make the changes. So I know there's coming a time in my life in which it won't be long in which somebody will be preaching at my funeral. I also know that there are churches that I'm acquainted with today it won't be long, a few years, in which their doors will be closed. That's sorrow to me. Things change. Speaking of funerals, a good friend of mine, I called him the other day and he asked how I was doing. And I said, well, let me tell you what I've had done. He said, what have you had done now? I said, I had my tear ducts plugged up. He said, you what? I said, I had my tear ducts plugged up. And he said, why did you have that done for? I said, well, I've supposedly got dry eyes, and they're trying to keep the moisture in my eyes to help me focus, because I can only see something just for maybe ten seconds, and the line disappears, and I have to blink and blink and blink. So it's a desire to try to improve my eyesight. He said, that's the craziest thing I ever heard of. I said, well, what's so bad with it? He said, now you won't be able to cry at my funeral. guy always thinking about himself. <laughs> Sorrows. They're drawing near. The book of Ecclesiastes is becoming more real to me. Chapter 12. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, for the days will come where you have no joy in them. That is, they're filled with aches and pains and moans and groans. And the longer you live, the more you see things occurring in your family. You live 80, 90, 95 years. In most cases, you're going to see some, if not all, your children die. You're going to outlive your children. This life is filled with sorrows. And yet, our God knows our needs. He knows all about those, whatever set of circumstances that we are in, whatever our needs are, whatever our sorrows are, and He knows the precise moment to come to our relief. Thank God for that. Verse 2. You know my downsitting and my uprising, and you understand my thought afar off. This tells us that God knows every posture, every gesture, every movement of our external bodies when we sit down to read, write, or talk, or when we rise up for active service. What a concept. Look next. You understand my thought afar off. Or long before it's ever formed. Hmm? That's what that means. Long before I ever form a thought, God knows that thought is coming and will come. God is perfectly acquainted with every emotion, every idea, every desire, every doubt, every fear, every hope, every perplexity, which we have as creatures possessing in our souls or the inner man. What they have been, what they are now, and what they will be. 
What a concept of this God. God who made our minds knows our thoughts all the time, or else he could not predict future events and govern the world. How could God predict future events if he were not aware of the thoughts that men were going to be thinking when those events would come to pass? Hmm? Acts chapter 4. The Jews with the Gentiles with wicked hands gathered themselves together to crucify the Lord of glory. Do you believe God knew that was going to happen? Do you believe that he knew that before Pilate ever thought how to handle this problem he was having with Jesus, that God knew every thought and everything that Pilate would be thinking when as yet he had never yet been born. Hmm? That's the God with whom we have to deal with. Oh, away with the idea that God doesn't know anything until it happens. Hmm? Ever so often that idea floats out there. Well, God can't really know anything for sure until he sees it happening. Here, David said, you understood what I was going to think before I ever thought it. You know my thought afar off. Prophecy would be impossible if God did not foreknow the thoughts of what men were planning. Hmm? Verse 3, you compass my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. The first part of the sentence, you compass my path and my lying down. God knows the active and the passive times of our lives. He knows when we are awake and we're alert and we are participating in various activities. He also knows when we are asleep, when we are passive, and we're in the dream world. He knows when we are in the public, like I am today, speaking before an audience of people, and he knows me in my private times. What I'm thinking in private as well as what I am speaking in public. God knows that. You compass my path, my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Look at that last sentence there. Are acquainted with all of my ways. What do we mean by the word ways? You say, well, that's the way he is. That's the way a man is, or that's the way she is. Our ways define all the behavior, the conditions, and the states which make up the being of a person. I'll say that again. Our ways define how we behave, the conditions that we're in, the state that we live in, not necessarily geographically, which make up our being as a human being. God knows the movements by which, we ex the mo by which we execute our purposes and desires. All of our social, public, and private ways are known by God. 
He knows us better than our closest friend. God knows me better than my wife, Carolyn. Now hold on. God knows me better than I know myself. Hmm? That's right. That's right. He knows things about me and what makes me tick that I don't know. Have you ever become aware of something about yourself that you didn't formally know? I'm talking about just why you like certain things, why you wear certain clothes, why you go to certain places. That's, that's an interesting thing. I'm left-handed. Have you determined that by now? For years, I could not understand why I, as a left-handed person, could not use a felt pen. Whenever I would try to use a felt pen, it would smear. And nobody ever explained that to me. And one day I let out a yell in my office there. I think it must have caused my wife to think I'd had a heart attack. I got it. I got it. Well, what have you discovered? What did you get? I understand now why a left-hander can't use a felt pen. Has to use a pencil or a ballpoint. Well, why? Because a left-hander has to push across the page, whereas a right-hander has the privilege of pulling across the page. When you push a felt pen into something, why, there's a blemish as such. In my first grade of school, in the one-room country school, I think it was the last year they ever tried that, they tried to bend my hand and tie it with a, um, a, a uh, rag so that I'd have to be forced to write with my right hand because they felt everybody was left-handed. There's something wrong with them. That, well, they quit that. Have you ever seen left-handed people write like this? Now, what are they doing? They're pulling it across the page as such. You say, why in the world you throw that in for? That was a discovery... Something about me that was thrilling. I'm going to put a patent on that somehow and make some money and explain to all the left-handed people in the world that this is not a left-handed world that we live in. It's all for right-handed people. Just name one thing after another where a left-hander just doesn't fit into the picture. I have learned something about myself, Pete. Now, God knew all about that before I ever knew it. That's just one crude illustration that as we go through this life, we are constantly learning what makes us a human being and what makes us tick. God knows all about that. He knows me better today than I know myself. Now, that's consoling. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Verse 4. There's not a word in my tongue... But lo, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows the meaning of every word which we speak. The purpose why it was spoken, 
and the thought from which it originated. Mm. Words originate from thoughts. And God knows the interpretation of the word because he knows the thought from which it originates. He knows not only what we said, but what was our purpose in saying it. Whether we meant well or whether we meant harm, God is aware of the motive behind the use of words. Thoughts equal words with God. God who knows the heart is independent of words. He doesn't have to wait until a word comes out of my mouth before he knows knows something about me. He knows my thoughts, what I'm thinking. A lesson here, be careful what and how you say things. Matthew twelve thirty six. Jesus said, I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. You know my tongue, what I speak. You know it all together. Verse 5. You have beset me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Notice the first part of that expression. You have beset me behind and before. God's got me pinned in on both sides. God remembers our past and he knows our future. No matter if we step back, stand still, or move forward, God's knowledge surrounds us. If we change and re-embrace a former view, if we maintain a present view, or if we change to a new and different view, God's all-seeing eye is still upon us. We cannot retreat and escape Him, nor can we go forward and outrun Him. His knowledge is all around us. Next part of that verse. And you've laid your hand upon me. That is, you've surrounded me with all this knowledge. And you, in your infinite wisdom, then you have laid out a providence unique for me. Do you know you're looking at a person this morning that is as unique as a snowflake? God has designed a providence for my life that none of the rest of you participate in. Oh yes, if we're all believers, we're going to all end up conformed to the perfect image of Jesus Christ. But not all of us are going to get there in exact the same providential manner. Some are going to come into this life being raised in a Christian home, and some are going to be 80 years old before they ever hear the gospel. A different providence. You've laid your hand upon me, your power. The word hand in the Bible is associated with the power of God. And when you put infinite wisdom into place, then you have backed up by infinite power is that God has surrounded my total being 
so that wherever I'm at, whatever I'm thinking, wherever I'm going, there is an all-wise providence working out His good purpose for me. That, what does that mean in practice? It means that I can look out at you and I can recognize that what you're experiencing today is not what I'm experiencing today. Hmm? So I have no grounds that if something good is happening to you and my life is filled with sorrow at the moment, I have no grounds of being envious of you. Why? Because God has determined the sorrow that is necessary for me at this moment. So I don't compare myself with other people to determine if I am getting a fair shake in this life. I am receiving what the hand of God in His infinite wisdom determined for me before the world ever began. I'm unique. And I have to learn contentment with that. Amen? I have learned, Paul says, in whatever state I'm in, to be content. Know how to be exalted. I know how to be abased. All of these things work together for my good. Your hand is upon me. And it's a hand that is being moved by an all-wise understanding of your glory and what is going to be best for me. Verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. Look at that expression, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now, this knowledge may be understood in one of two ways. It may be first understood as God's amazing and perfect knowledge of all things. And we've been trying to convey that the last two weeks here. He is all-knowing. That's an amazing thing. To never have anything trip you up because you were unaware of it. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. I think I've related to you how that as a 18-year-old boy, I loved to go to my grandparents' home, and my grandfather was the checker player, champion of the whole county. And when we would play checkers, why, we'd start out, he'd say, now, Jimmy, that's what he'd call me, uh, you take the first move. Well, okay, I'm going to beat Grandpa today. And so I make a move. He makes a move, make another, he makes another one. He said, oh, here, you've got a jump here. You need to take, take that jump. So I jumped it. Ah, I got one. <laughs> Going to beat him today. Another one. I got another one of his. I got three. It's looking good. And all of a sudden, then he'd look at me. 
Isn't that nice? <laughs> it just, I can still see his face. Still see his face. He had me under his control from the beginning of the game. He knew whatever move I would make of how he would be able to counter that and bring it out to the outcome that he desired. It's a wonderful thing to be able to possess a knowledge, to be able to work out and control your plans and purposes. And that's what frustrates us as finite creatures, is that our plans and purposes don't always work out. But let us be careful that we never put God in that picture as if at the end of all things out here in the eternal state comes, that God will somehow have to look back and say, oh, I overlooked that. If I had only known this or that, I'd have done it differently. No, not with the God of the Bible. That's what David may have meant. Your knowledge is an amazing and perfect knowledge. Or the second way that he may have meant this statement, is that it may be referring our conception or awareness of God's omniscience, such as, I cannot admire it enough. I cannot grasp its fullness. I honor it. I stand, what, amazed? How is it, Brother Cox? in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. This may be what David is meaning here, is that I just stand as I become aware of all this knowledge which you possess. I'm amazed at it. So it may mean either that God's wisdom is worthy of all knowledge, it's a perfect knowledge, or it may mean David's awareness of it. Probably both. Look at the final statement. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. You that like theology, listen carefully. We cannot comprehend God, or rather, start over, we comprehend God the most when we view Him as incomprehensible. We comprehend God the most when we view Him as incomprehensible. Don't ever think you'll ever achieve a time in this present age or the age to come in which that you'll know all there is to know about God. He's incomprehensible. Jim, it's at that time, it's time to pull off our shoes and bow and worship. When we see ourselves consumed with the thoughts of His imperfections, and therein fall into admiration and awe of God. Oh, that knowledge is a wonderful thing. So let us, therefore, not doubt 
and question what we cannot understand about God, but rather let us believe and adore what we can understand about God. Well, somebody says, I have a problem with this. I have a problem. I don't understand why God does this or why He does that, why He's like this. Let's not doubt and question what we cannot understand. Let's believe and trust God and adore God for what He has given us the understanding about Him. Hmm? I close with this application. How would it affect you if you knew that wherever you went, whatever you did, whatever you thought, in public or private, that an eye of a close friend was constantly fixed upon you? And that that person could at any time tell others or the whole world everything and anything about you. Hmm? Still want a friend like that? That's a sobering thought, folks. What if I knew something about you that would be not very encouraging? And I got on a local TV station, or better than yet, I got on the Internet, and I spread that knowledge all about you all over the world. Because I knew it was the case. That's a sobering thought. My hearers, this morning, there is such an eye. And that's the eye of an all-seeing, all-wise God. At any moment, He could disclose to the whole world what makes you tick. Think about that. And yet, in spite of all that He knows about us, He loved us and sent His Son into the world to live and die on our behalf. Hmm? What a consoling thought. There is such an eye that watches over you and me as His people day by day by day. That's why I can go to bed at night and go to sleep. What's the song the little kids were taught? Now I lay me down to sleep. Now I pray my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, what's the rest of it? What? Somebody, see, I I can't hear you. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any good (laughs) for you to finish the song or the poem. That's a childlike simplicity of being able to go to bed at night knowing that your Heavenly Father knows. To get up in the morning and know what the day has ahead 
that he knows. He knows. Do you know the God like that who knows you intimately? Do you have a desire to know? Do you see now, my hearers, why Paul in the first chapter of Romans describes the wicked as seeking to suppress that knowledge of God? Hmm? Do you see why he says the unbeliever out here doesn't want a God who sees all things? And that's the reason why people go into the depths of atheism and so forth. It's an attempt to suppress the conscience, to dull and sear the conscience that there is a God to whom they are accountable. I saw a sign the other day somewhere, Who wants a judgmental God? Hmm? Men don't want that. And my hearers, I give you this closing exhortation. They will never want that without a divine intervention of the Holy Spirit of God changing their heart and giving them a new heart that loves the all-knowing God. If you're here like that today and you're still, you have inadequate views of God and you oh you're you're not in the fold you're maybe a sheep but you're not yet been brought into the fold of God's saving grace call out upon him this day lord while on others thou art calling do not pass me by pass me not o gentle savior hear my humble cry Come to this God. Don't suppress Him. Because while He knows all about you and all about your sin, He has sent a Savior to handle that. Look to that Savior. Come to this God and find peace and satisfaction in the soul. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving... David, these words so many thousands of years ago, but contain these eternal truths. And I pray that you take them today, and may they be more than just audible words, but may your Spirit strike them deep within the inner being of my hearers, so that whatever set of circumstances, whatever needs, whatever desires, whatever expectations, This group of people has brought into this auditorium today. I pray through this message today that you might speak to them in whatever their greatest need is. And may your Son have the preeminence in this worship service, for it's in His name we pray. Amen.